All across America, the Southern Baptist Convention includes more than 15 million members, all shepherded by some 47,000 pastors. A few pastors live in big cities and serve megachurches with large memberships. But the majority serve small congregations and are paid modestly. The pay that I got was half of the offering. Sometimes it was $10, sometimes maybe 15 Often, after serving their whole lives, they head into retirement with small earnings and little savings. So even buying basics like food and medicine can be a bumpy road. And I have went to bed hungry because I want my bills paid. I've got to pay for my medicine. Guidestone's Mission Dignity Ministry gives someone like you opportunities for assisting retired Southern Baptist ministers, workers, and their spouses in critical financial need. Since 1918, we've been the arms of Christ extended to these faithful servants. It takes over $7 million annually from people like you and churches like yours to provide monthly assistance to nearly 1,800 retirees who have nowhere else to turn. 100% of donations go directly to help someone in need. Through Mission Dignity, we as Southern Baptists are working together to assure no retired preacher or his widow has to live in poverty. Learn more at missiondignity.org. And good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. Now that we're in the dead of summer, that's what everything after July 4th is, just the dead of summer. But uh, good to see y'all. So uh, we got a big thing going on this summer, the chili peppers. You heard Chris talking about that a, a moment ago. We're real excited. The chili peppers, if you're not familiar with them, this is a team in Colonial Heights. They play at the historic Shepherd Stadium. They're a group of college players. There's a league for these college players that are being recruited into the pros and, and Colonial Heights has one of those teams. And they've been a hot ticket this summer. They've been really well received. It's a lot of fun. So we thought it might be a good way for our family to reconnect uh, as we're coming out of COVID. And we just bought out the entire stadium. On, on August 1st, we have every single ticket that they sell. So they, they have a 1,000 tickets. We bought them for $16 a piece, but we're going to sell them to you for $10. And not only do you get into the stadium, but as you heard said earlier, concessions will come with that. I don't know exactly what that looks like or how it works, but apparently the popcorn, the hot dogs, the Cokes, you just keep, keep go getting them. If you're in the stadium, you get to keep eating. So uh, we're going to have a wonderful time. Our multi-gen choir is going to do the national anthem. Our praise team is going to be out there uh, also singing. And you heard I might be throwing out the the first pitch. Oh, Jason, it makes me so nervous right now. I can... I actually played baseball. You know, I'm already feeling like I'm getting defensive for what might be seen in me throwing out the first pitch. I, I, you know, I went to Texas A&M on a, on a track and field scholarship. The operative word there is track and field. I, I didn't go to play baseball, okay? And so, I, you know, I used to be good at something. Uh, so just, you know, whatever happens, 
that night at the opening pitch, just remember I, I preach, okay? Uh, so, but we're going we're gonna to have a great time. I hope you'll be there. Tickets are on sale right now. Like, not, not like get up and leave, go get them, but uh, out, out there. And they're hard tickets, so for the moment, we're not doing that online. You have to, to go out there and get them. If you're watching online, you can come during the week and, and get them. I encourage you to think about your family, not only your family, but maybe a, a neighbor, a, a friend, some co-workers that you'd kind of like to introduce to our church, but maybe think you need to kind of soft shoe that a little bit. Uh, bringing them to a baseball game might be a, a good way for that. So you will see me in this August 1st, throwing the first pitch. Come out and be a part of that. There will, by, by the way, no video devices, no te- telephones, and it sells at any for that moment, okay? So we'll see you August 1, get those tickets. Uh, the video you just saw, Mission Dignity, we introduced Mission Dignity uh, a number of years ago to our church family. I know many of you have actually become uh, monthly supporters, regular givers to Mission Dignity. Uh, Karen and I have been given to Mission Dignity, I, I think probably going on six or seven years now. Outside of my church, I think I love giving to Mission Dignity the most. They, they give to support people that are living in poverty. Uh, these They have to have served 20 years in the ministry. They have to be over the age of 65. And you may wonder, how did these pastors end up in poverty? M- many of them were pastors, very faithful, wonderful people who served the Lord and His people. And they did it in smaller churches where not only was the pay very, very little... But the biggest part of the pay might have been that they got a parsonage. They got a place to live, which is wonderful right up to the moment that you retire. And now you have no paycheck and you have no home. And that's, that's where a lot of them end up in this situation. And these are wonderful people. I've, I've served on a, on a board that kind of reviewed uh, the applications. It's very strict, actually, to, to become a recipient of mission dignity. It's very strict, and there's a lot of accountability. I don't know about you, but most of my Christian life, listen, I know the scripture. I know Jesus wants me to care about the poor and wants me to do something. But I don't know about y'all. I always feel like, what, what do I do? And it always seems like whatever I'm doing is some kind of spontaneous moment. And then you wonder, well, did I do the right thing? And are they going to do the right thing? And how do you know? And it always ends up feeling kind of weird. And what I love about Mission Dignity is I have a way to give consistently, regularly in my life. I know where it's going. I know the process that they've been through. As I was saying, I was sitting in committee. I was surprised by the people we turned down. Uh, and we, our job was to review it and make sure, but I, I was shocked by the people that got turned down. My point in telling you that is the people that are recipients are absolutely living well below poverty. Uh, in their elderly years after, after having served the Lord. And so it's a, it's a great way to serve. I, it made the point in this, but just to be clear. So somebody with a whole lot of money one day gave Mission Dignity this money and built a foundation so that all of the administrative costs are covered. Their salaries, the office supplies, everything it takes to run Mission Dignity is covered by this foundation, meaning that 100% of what you give goes directly 
to these recipients and caring for their needs. So I encourage you to, to, to go online, Google Mission Dignity, go to their site and uh, look at that, make a one-time gift or, or maybe look at becoming a, a monthly supporter. It's just a great way to serve and care for the poor. I'm not saying that's the only poor. I'm not saying that's the only way. I am saying it's a wonderful way. What I would like to do, though, is for us to give a gift to Mission Dignity, not as a group of individuals, but, but as a church. And, and as a family. So I'd like to ask you to consider maybe looking at your, uh, your uh, giving app, PushPay, and go on there and under other, give a, give a gift. And so everything today, tomorrow, this week that is given under other, we're going to assume you meant that for mission dignity. And that's what it's going to go to. If you want to give something today on the way out, there'll be ushers at the door and you can and give that to them then but uh man let's do the best we can let's see if we can send them twenty five thirty thousand dollars what do you think i i great place to bless and i think there's a great blessing for doing doing that so uh i give monthly but i'm i'm gone to push pay already and i'm giving a gift today uh, just to be a part of what our church is doing in supporting this great ministry. So we're continuing today our, our series in First John. And when I say continuing, actually, we're turning and we're taking the horses to the barn. We're, we're down to two more messages today and next Sunday. And I, I tell you, I'm already excited about next Sunday. Folks, there's a lot of pain in life. There's a lot of pain, there's a lot of worry, there's a lot of anxiety, and a lot of that comes from constantly dealing with the unknown. The unknown of what this situation is going to hold tomorrow, the unknown of how to work through this decision. And, and in those unknowns, there's a, there's a lot of stress, a lot of worry, there can be a lot of pain. What we're going to see as we close First John 5, uh, chapter 5 next week is five things we know. Five things we know, and these are five things that you and I can begin to operate in life from what we know and not just what we don't know. So that's how we're going to be wrapping up First John 5 next week, but we need to get to next week. Today, we're going to look at the first 12 verses. If you want to go ahead and turn in your Bible, we're looking at First John chapter 5 verses 1 to 12, where we're going to see John review a very simple idea. As a matter of fact, it is the building block of Christianity. There, there's nothing that comes before this. this. This is the first truth upon which all of Christianity is built. And that simple truth is this. Jesus is the Son of God. That simple truth is what he's going to build on. And what he's going to do with that truth is give us evidence of that truth. Now, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of us, myself included, would go, well, you know, I don't really need that. I've already settled that in my heart. I already believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But, you know, you and I believe something that a whole lot of people don't. Our, our, our culture doesn't. And, boy, it's hard to believe something that other people don't. It, it's hard to go against the grain. We, we need to be encouraged. We need to be emboldened in our faith so that we're ready to share, we're ready to explain, we're, we're ready to defend but in John's case, when he shares this, it's not just about communicating to the believers, hey, want to encourage you, want to give you a reason to keep believing. He's actually addressing her heresy. 
this church that is only six decades old. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's only six decades since Jesus was walking around on the church. An idea has come into the church that Jesus wasn't a real person. Oh, they think people were interacting with something, a, a, a mirage, a, a ghost of something. But, but really what Jesus is, is an idea. It's the idea of a Jesus that brings us together. And so what John is going to do in this passage is he's going to go to two places, the, the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the end of Jesus' ministry, two events that have intense spiritual meaning to you and I, but he's going to anchor those in very physical realities. He's going to anchor truth to reality. Truth isn't an idea that I think of. Truth has reality. So let's see how he does this. First John chapter 5, I'll begin reading here in verse 1. First John 5 verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. Amen, right? That's one sentence, got a period at the end of it. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you are a child of God. John so clearly communicates that over and over and over and over. And yet, when you and I read 1 John, at least when I read 1 John, man, there's so many passages in this letter that leave me thinking, oh my gosh, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. I mean, you know, because if you're a Christian, this is there. And, he, and boy, he, cut, he gets up in our grill. We've done that for the last three months, right? And you're going, wow, man, I don't, I'm not even sure. John is not saying, hey, listen, if you want to be a child of God, you need to believe in Jesus. You need to obey the commands. You need to love God's people. No, what he's trying to say is we are saved by our faith alone. We're saved by belief alone. But if that faith is real... Because that's a question we have sometimes in our lives, right? You're laying there in bed at night. You're a little scared, a little nervous about something. You, how do I know my belief is real? How do I know I'm really a child of God? And what John's been giving us is evidence of a real belief. That's a very important distinction. This isn't a list of things to do to be saved. This is a list of evidences that you have been saved. If your belief is real, your salvation is real, you're going to love the people of God. And we talked about what all that love looks like and does. You're going to want to obey God. But it is by faith in Christ that we are saved. Verse, rest of verse 1. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children too, which we just said. We know we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. Loving God means keeping his commandments. And I love this phrase. And his commandments are not burdensome. Boy, Lord, help, help that be true in my life. I don't want obeying you to be a list of rules I'm trying to keep, duties I'm trying to... I want to... Man, God, I want to see the goodness behind your commands. I want to I see the rightness behind your commands. I want it to be a joy because it's not always easy, right? It's not always easy to obey the Lord, to trust these commands. But God, would you make it the joy of my life to obey you? For every... Verse 4, for every child of God defeats... This evil world. And we achieve this victory through our faith. And we, who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And those five verses, three times. Belief, faith, belief. We're saved by believing. Verse 6. And Jesus Christ was revealed as God's Son. Now he's starting to address this idea floating around in the church. 
He was revealed as God's son by his baptism in water and by shedding his blood on the cross. Now I'm reading the New Living Translation. There's a good chance whatever translation you're reading, you don't see the word cross or baptism. We'll, we'll come back to that. This is a good translation. It's representing what's being said there and what you're reading. Uh, we was revealed as God's son by his baptism in water and by shedding his blood on the cross. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And the spirit who is truth confirms it with his testimony. So we have these three witnesses, the spirit, the water, and the blood. All three agree. Since we believe human testimony, surely, surely we can believe the greater testimony that comes from God. And God has testified about his son. So now we technically have a fourth piece of evidence, a fourth eyewitness. We've got the, the water, the blood, and the spirit. And now we've got God, the, the father. Since we believe human, we can believe the greater. God has testified about his son. All who believe in the son of God know in their hearts that this testimony is true. Those who don't believe this are actually calling God a liar. You do not have to believe in God. You do not have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But you're not in control of the consequence for that. It is truth. God has said it is true. To reject that truth is to get in the face of God. People will wonder, why Why is that the only way? Because that's the way God revealed. And to do anything different is to call the God you're depending on to accept you because you're a good and wonderful person. You've just called God a liar. You're calling God a liar because they don't believe what God said, what God testified about his son. All this is, and this is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have God's son does not have life. When we believe in Jesus Christ, we defeat the world. And the idea of defeating the world there is as you draw from what he's been writing in this letter, that's defeating sin and that's defeating death. By believing in Christ, you and I have victory. We have victory over sin and death. That's why we read God's word. That's why we gather in worship. That's why we're here today, right? Because we believe this. Do you know that roughly seven out of eight people on planet earth do not believe that? That they believe something else about God or a God or no God at all. Boy, it's hard to believe something when nobody around you does. You, you and I put our faith, our confidence, we put our life into something that, that almost everybody around us does not. Likewise, they put their life, their hope, their confidence in things that you and I do not. So we're going against the grain. Boy, you need reason for that. You, you need encouragement for that. And John is giving that encouragement here. Encouragement to those who believe, challenging those who have a wrong belief. And he says to us, hey, the evidence is there. The, the water, the blood, the spirit all give testimony that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, let's look at what this means, this idea. And you know, this is kind of strange. I'm going to be honest with you. If I was sitting down with somebody at lunch and going to try to prove 
that Jesus is the Son of God, I don't think I would use John's line of reasoning here. <laughs> I, I don't think I'd say, well, let's talk about the baptism or, or the crucifixion. But what he's doing is addressing this idea that Jesus isn't even a real person. So he's using these stories to anchor Jesus to being a real person, to physical, historical realities, starting with the water and the Spirit. Now, when John thinks of, when John hears the water and the Spirit, there's a profound moment in his life where water and Spirit mean something, and that's the baptism of Jesus. When he uses this phrase, he's referring to that event. Yesterday, we, we drove to Yorktown for the afternoon, our, our, our little Rose, our, our now almost three-year-old uh, granddaughter was having a birthday party, and so we did that at a pool, so there was a lot of water, and there was cake. So if today, if I just hear the words water and cake, a very vivid picture comes to my mind. I, I think of Rose yesterday having her party. It was a mermaid party. It was wonderful. Y'all should have seen it. You know, it was a wonderful moment. So see, just two words, water and cake. And I've got a whole picture in my mind. I've got a whole story in my mind. That's what water and spirit means to John. Now, let me back up and kind of bring us running into this event so you can see why that's what John is thinking. Now, before John the Apostle was a follower of Jesus, he was a follower of John the Baptist, okay? Look up here. This is John chapter 1, the Gospel of John. The next day again, John, that's the Baptist, John the Baptist was standing with two of his unnamed disciples two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. In other words, he's saying, hey, y'all, that's the guy I've been telling you about. That's him. That's the one. That's, that's the Son of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. They stopped being a disciple of John the Baptist, and they became disciples, apostles of Jesus. You might wonder, gosh, was John's, John the Baptist, was his feelings hurt? No, that's what he was there for to turn people to, to lead people to following Jesus. Now, you notice I say two unnamed disciples. Who were those two guys? It's, it's not clear, but I believe there's some historical context, some historical things going on in the four Gospels that we can begin to narrow down who that was. Probably the big thing for me, you see this all through the Gospel of John. You see this through his letters. John never mentions himself. If he's talking about something the other disciples did, then he'll tell you who the disciples were. But if he's involved in it, then they immediately become unnamed disciples. He never writes his own name. That's why I think the two disciples standing there are John, who we now think of as the apostle, and Andrew. These are the two early disciples of Jesus. And when they began following Jesus, guess what they did? They each went and got their own brother. Peter or Andrew went and got Peter, John went and got James, and they began following Jesus Christ. So the reason I tell you that is if in fact, and I do believe, that John the, Bapt John the Apostle was following John the Baptist, then that means he was learning about the Messiah before the Messiah was here. And John the Baptist was saying, hey guys, I'm gonna, there's going to be something really cool happening. I'm going to baptize the Son of God. And then, of course, if somebody said to you, what are you going to say? Well, how do you know? Because God told me, okay, well, how are you going to know who it is? Well, I'm going to baptize them. Well, John, you're, you're baptizing thousands of people. How are you going to know which one is the Son of God? And John the Baptist said, you know, I'm glad you asked. Look up here. And John bore witness, that's John the Baptist. 
John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. That's Jesus. I myself did not know him. In other words, there wasn't anything about me that I was able to recognize who the Son of God was. It wasn't anything that I intuitively knew or I was able to recognize. My ability to know that was him is that he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and reign, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that is the Son of God. That's John the Baptist saying that. Now, I believe that John the Apostle was at Jesus' baptism. He would have been maybe the only disciple. Maybe Andrew was there. Maybe one other. But he, he he might have been there. But even if John the Baptist was not there, excuse me, John the Apostle, John the Apostle was at the very minimum an eyewitness to the eyewitness testimony of John the Baptist. I was there. I saw it. This is what happened. He is getting it firsthand from John the Baptist if he didn't see it himself. So you see now why in his life, water and spirit begins to take on a whole new meaning. It begins to mean something. And it wasn't just the water and the spirit. What does he say here? And God gave testimony. Look what Matthew records at the baptism of Jesus. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. You know, I'm guessing if you hear a voice from heaven, it leaves a mark. That's something you're going to remember. And you say, well, what, what if John the Baptist wasn't there to hear the voice? Well, then you go to the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus took uh, Peter, James, and John up on top of the mount and God spoke from heaven a second time. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So you see for, for John, when, when you say baptism, when you say water and spirit, what's coming to his mind A very vivid, a very real, a very concrete story. He is trying to say, guys, I'm telling you, Jesus isn't just an idea. He's not just a mirage that we kind of looked at for a while together and then developed something out of. Listen, there's a very real eyewitness testimony. There is a very, there's very real water. There's a very real dove. There's very real prophecy being fulfilled. And I'm telling you, this is the Son of God. We anchor to historical realities. You know, I, find, I think this is, this is so interesting. All of my Christian life, up until about the last three or four years, I, I've lived in a world where what I believe is kind of called myths and fairy tales and what you do when you don't trust science. But the rest of the world has science. They have hard facts. They have data. You know, neither one of those statements is true. First of all, we do not believe in myths and fairy tales. We, we believe in real events that are historically verifiable, and there is evidence for what happened in those events, and we place our faith in the meaning of those events, right? So is there faith? Oh, absolutely. But it's in historical, physical, concrete realities. And science, by the way, is not all concrete reality. Science has this little word that they use when they don't know where to start. It's called a presupposition. It means we don't know. So we're just going to have a starting point right here with this presupposition. That's a very fancy word for faith. We don't know, but based on what we do know, we're going to start with this. But this is the world we've lived in, right? Until all of a sudden now, 
I think it's Christians that are trying to remind the world, hey, I think we should... I think we should define truth by historically verifiable realities. I I think we should define truth by what is real. And yet we live in a world now that says, no, truth is my feelings and my experiences. The truth is, is my truth. I develop that truth. But it has to have reality to it. It has to anchor to what is real. Can you imagine you ever think of a day it'd be Christians reminding people to anchor what is real? Be careful where you put your faith, what you call truth. So John's starting there because, by the way, nothing's new under the sun. What we're dealing with today is the same thing he's writing to right there. And so he starts with the baptism, then he jumps to the cross, which I think we all are very cognizant. When Boy, when the Bible says blood, it tends to focus us all on one thing, right? The cross. And John the Apostle, he may have been one or one of only one or two at the baptism, but he was the only one. Can you imagine that? I wouldn't have imagined that. John the Apostle is the only one at the cross. Night before when Jesus was arrested, they all did what? Time to get out of town. Things are going down here and it's not going to be good. They're afraid. I don't want to be beaten up. I don't want to be arrested. I I, I don't want to be attacked. And they fled. They're keeping a watch from a distance. They're in hiding. But John the Apostle, every time I talk about John, think about John, I love him a little bit more. John the Apostle is at the cross. Not just nearby, I can see it over there. He was so close to the cross that Jesus could talk to him and did talk to him. And in the state that Jesus was in, I can't imagine his talking is anything much above a whisper. So he's close enough to the cross that Jesus can speak to him. And y'all know what he said there, right? Hey, John, take care of my mom. Mom, just treat him now as your son. Interesting what Jesus focused on. I'm focused on the whole world and I'm taking care of my mom. So he speaks to him there. And, and John gives us a lot of testimony, eyewitness testimony. You don't have to believe it, but have you ever asked yourself why you're rejecting eyewitness testimony? John gives us all kinds of what's going on in and around the cross, and he focuses on the blood, which is kind of interesting, this verse I'm going to show you in a second, that it focuses on the blood because this is a bloodbath. Jesus is already, before he ever got to the cross, he was flogged. All the skin from his neck down his back and legs is gone. All the underlying muscle is torn up. He is close to death before he ever gets to the cross from blood loss alone. Then he's nailed to the cross. There is blood everywhere. But listen to what John focuses on now. Look at this verse from the Gospel of John. But one of the soldiers pierced his side. You know what? You don't pierce the side of a ghost. You don't pierce the side of an idea. You pierce a real being. He pierced his side, and at once there came out blood and water. Blood doesn't come out of an idea. Blood doesn't come out of a ghost. Blood comes out of something real. It comes out blood and water. He who saw it, he doesn't use his name. He's not ever going to say, I, John. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may believe. That you may believe what? That Jesus is the Son of God. You know, we, we use today, and what I was just talking about, we use the phrase, my truth. And, and in our, can I use the word craziness? 
in our craziness, I can have a truth and you can have a truth and they can contradict. They can actually invalidate each other. That doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything at all. Listen, the only thing that matters is that I respect you and your truth. You respect me and my truth. You do you. I do me. Everybody's good. And we're, and we're okay with this in our culture, in our world. Truth does not have to have any bearing in reality. And here's the Gospels saying truth is connected to historical, physical reality. It's not my truth. My, my belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for my sins and rose again so that I could rise again, that's not my truth. That's God's revealed truth of which I'm required to respond. I'm required to respond. You know, the reason I say that is you don't, you don't actually have to respond to all truth. You know, I'll tell you a piece of truth. It's snowing somewhere in the world today. That's true. I, I, don't, I don't know where it's snowing. I, I mean, if I'm betting, I, I mean, probably north or south pole, wouldn't you guess? Lisa Flurry. Somewhere in the world today, it's snowing. I'm not going to make a single decision based on that truth. There's absolutely nothing I'm going to do today or tomorrow or this week because it's snowing somewhere. And I'm really counting on the fact that that will have no impact on my life at all, that I'm ignoring the reality that it's snowing somewhere. That is a truth that I can ignore, and it really doesn't amount to much. The living God is saying to you today, this is not one of those truths. I will not make you believe, but if you ignore this, you're responsible then for the consequences of ignoring that truth. And John makes very clear here, here, here's the truth. Jesus is the Son of God. He who has that truth has life. He who has rejected that truth does not have life. Now, somebody in a little snarky attitude could say, I don't believe Jesus is God, and I'm standing right here very much alive. No, you're not. Yes, you have physical life, but you are completely, entirely, spiritually dead. And because you are spiritually dead, your physical life means absolutely nothing. You may be having fun in a meaningless life. You may be miserable in a meaningless life. You may be poor. You may be rich. You may have had a good week. You may have had a bad week. Your life amounts to nothing because every day you live on this earth, you're marching toward death. And if you enter spiritual death, or if you enter physical death, still in your spiritual death, that spiritual death becomes locked in eternity. And you will now spend all of eternally separated from God in what God refers to as hell. But if somewhere along the way I receive God's truth, I am now, I've already been physically born, but now I can be spiritually born. I can have a second birth. I can be born again. A term we throw around. Where where does that come from? What's that mean? I've already had a physical birth. I need to have a spiritual birth. And now guess what? My life, maybe rich, maybe poor, maybe really happy, maybe kind of miserable, but either way, my life is now defined by life. I am now every day moving towards life and life eternal. And everything I do in this life can now have meaning and worth and purpose. That's life. This is life. God and his son. You do not have to accept that truth. But you will accept the consequences of that truth.
There is one truth that is the building block to all of life. There is one truth that is the building block to all of this universe. Jesus is the Son of God. And I measure all truths, my perceived truths, your perceived truths. I measure all of that against Jesus and what he taught us. Jesus is the Son of God. It is just that simple. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to know that truth. I thank you that I know that. And it's, it's not because of my intelligence, my spirituality. It's my goodness. It, it wasn't that I was doing so well. You felt like you owed me the opportunity. It is by your grace, your kindness, your goodness that I was allowed to interact in a way that my heart and mind would be open to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. Lord, I believe many of us in here right now watching online, we would all together say, thank you, God, that I have that truth, that I know that truth. Thank you that it's not based on a feeling. It's not based on just an experience. It is anchored to physical, historical realities. Lord, I would pray for those in this room right now, those online that have not yet come to that truth, not yet accepted that truth. Oh, God, would you open their heart and mind to receive you, to be drawn to you, to trust that Jesus is their God and Savior. Lord, if this day should they not choose that, I, I, Lord, I pray they hear this in love. I pray they're miserable. I pray nothing in their life will work. I pray that nothing in their life will come together. I pray that they cannot sleep until they rightly wonderfully, graciously deal with the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. And they would come to you and let you adopt them as your very own child. Holy Spirit, would you move and work right now in hearts and lives, here in person, watching online. May we think rightly about what we've done with this truth. And having received it, may we rightly live it and share it and proclaim it in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.